Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to a special bonus episode of The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm joined by a man you may know as Thelonious Phil from the Fighting Cock podcast, but to me, he's just my good friend, T. Hey, how you doing, T? Not bad, mate, not me. Good to good, good to finally make it on The Extra Inch. Making your debut. <laughs> yeah, we've been good under better circumstances, but we are where we are. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, how, how are you doing? How's, how's lockdown been for you? Uh, it's been good. Um, spend a lot of time with my family. But, you know, as we spoke about before the call, when you work from home, you normally, you know, in your boxes and you're by yourself in a house and you're a man of leisure. But this occasion, I'm in a house of you know, three or four other people milling about. So it's very, very different. But, no, lockdown's been been great, but I'm kind of gagging for, for it to be lifted. A bit of normality. Yes, yes, yes. And obviously, lockdown is hard enough for everyone as it is, but... How did the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent events in the States and of here impact on you? Oh, it's been been unprecedented. I don't know if the lockdown has kind of amplified things a bit because usually you'll have a game of football to take your mind off it or yeah. you know, a boxing match or some other event. But everything is honed in on what's happened to George Floyd and, and the aftermath. But... <clears throat> You know, I'm very, I think a lot of black people are just very pessimistic. You know, when these things happen to know it's happening again, whatever, we'll forget about them in a week when the hashtag is no longer trending. But, you know, the aftermath has been, been expected. I think black people are just very, you know, just tired of it, really. And, you know, it's had a bit of an effect on my mental health. You know, people putting you know, videos up and people being devil's advocate quote-unquote, to talk about the life that George Floyd led. And um, it's been a very surreal two weeks. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, I mean, you, you've you pointed me in the past in the direction of lots of reading materials and listening materials. And I mean, quite frankly, you've helped educate me in the history of, um, for want of a better phrase, black history and structural racism. Mm-hmm. And that's been hugely appreciated. But that must be pretty exhausting to have to constantly be trying to kind of pass materials onto white people and, and, and allow them to understand what black people see. Yeah, it can be. 
um, it does almost feel like the onus is almost on, on black people when it should maybe be the other way around. But um, you know, sometimes I just put the crumbs out there, you know, for want of a better term, to kind of lead people in, in the right direction. There are, there are people who want to learn more and want to understand more about racism. And I guess there's some people, as you've seen from the scenes over the weekend in the, was it the, was it the anti, Antifa protest, what do you even call that? The Churchill yeah, protests. I mean, yeah, what, it was the pr- protecting the, the statues was what it was presented as, but I mean we know it to be far more insidious than that. Yeah, so you know if I gave them the Rennie Edo Lodge book, um, where I'm no longer speaking to white people about race, they'd you know probably spit in my face. But there's a lot of people who are receptive and want to educate themselves. So you know it's 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 a mixed bag and it is exhausting. But this time it does feel a bit different. It does feel like. You know, there are going to be some changes, maybe not the sea change that we all want, but there will be enough changes. Um, I mean, for example, there's a push to have, you know, colonialism be properly spoken about in, in schools, mm-hmm. uh, be parts of, you know, maybe black history that be part of um, normal history, <laughs> um, so to speak. So you know, these things are gaining traction and that would be good. I think it's important to know the full story when talking about the history of, of England, you know, the warts and all. I think that's a really good point, and I, I want, to, want to come back to that. But if we can just go back briefly um, to the impact that this has had on your mental health and the mental health of a lot of black people. I mean, it's not just it's not just you suffering, T. It's um, no. I mean, th- this must be rife amongst amongst other black people that you know, other black people I know are suffering. Um, why is that? What's what? Do you know what it is that's triggered um, kind of these feelings in you? Uh, just feels feels helpless it feels like you know it's happened again and it keeps happening and you know people are saying black lives matter which is a slogan and they say no all lives matter but you know we've seen enough analogies to last a lifetime over the last week about a burning house or Mm. broken bones and not all bones matter not all houses matter and they're still not seeing it and you know you go on i mean i've had to delete the twitter app from my phone because you just be idly scrolling through and you just see someone you just see something that just kind of ruins your day you know whether it was um i don't know george floyd beat up a pregnant woman and he was subsequently imprisoned um he was high on i think it was fentanyl or meth not sure they're the same thing at the time when he died so you're reading all these comments and saying well you know maybe you deserve to die and i'm just like you know what the what the fuck is that about you know and um then you got this thing called the george floyd challenge where people are reenacting their knee on someone's neck mm. um you know so that's that's just you know that's that's also triggering and just um just people just not wanting to get it that racism exists and it's real and there is no such thing as a race card you know and it does feel like you're banging head against a brick wall Times. Talk to me about that more. So when you say there's no such thing as a race card, um, what you're saying there, I assume, is that people use that as a defence mechanism and actually it's it's a way of them refusing to accept what's in front of their eyes. Well, yeah, it's a term I've used in a lot of the last week and a half, two weeks, which is, you know, gaslighting. I mean, I didn't know what the term meant in full till a week ago. But that's a lot. That's, that's, you know, what happens a lot of the time where, you know, black people will say, look, you know, there's racism that exists, you know, stops us from doing this, that and the other. And they say, no, well, you're just playing the race card. Why do you work hard like everyone else does? And, mm. you know, the structures that are in place make it difficult for, for black people to, to get by. And that's not obviously it's not a catch all case. Um, I mean, we're going to speak about football as an industry in itself, but there are some people in football who push through, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. So, so like, I don't want to speak about race sometimes because I feel like people feel I'm just going to go on and on about the same things the whole time. And that kind of has an effect on me. If I'm, 
I don't know, if you're unwell and you're telling people that you're unwell, at times of time they're saying, you're not sick, you're not sick, there's nothing wrong with you, you do this all the time, and you're clearly suffering, that's going to affect your mental health in some way. Now think about that as your race, which, you know, current technology, you can't change your race, so, you know what I mean, it's not something that I can kind of, I can't just stop being black for a day and just live, you know, live a normal life. I mean, that puts it into... And serious perspective if every day you're having to kind of stop yourself saying things that you want to say because you you fear the impact it will have on other people and the impact that that will subsequently have on you um that must be really difficult I mean I, I can't even imagine not feeling free to express myself in that way um, yeah I mean I mean sorry to cut you but there's this but there's this um, page on Instagram I think it's called a safe space I mean I'll probably put it in probably put it in the bio after the after the pod and it's about black people anonymously submitting experiences that have happened to them at work okay um and I think one black lady I mean a lot of black women go through this you know black women really do have it tough and you know she's had a she had her hair done and she was just really anxious the night before in the morning of going into work that she knew it was going to be the subject of conversation and people are going to take the piss and try and touch her hair and ask stupid questions and you know when you go into work you just want to get on it you're going to be talking about your hair or mm. you know if it's your hair how much did it cost you know it's just simple simple little things like that really stuff that white people just would not appreciate at all yeah i mean um you know we all have a level of privilege i've got a level of privilege as a straight as a, as a straight male and there's some things i don't think about you know when you're going out late at night and i'm walking the streets and women go through an awful lot you know, um, trans people, gay, they all go through an awful lot, but you don't think about your own privilege day in, day out. So so when people hear the word privilege, they think, oh, they must mean that they've got, you know, living life with a silver spoon. But it's not that at all, really. No, and that's the section of the Edo Lodge book that I really enjoyed, the, the sort of section about intersectionality. Yes, yes. And, and how different people are negatively affected uh, in multiple different ways, depending on, like you say, orientation, gender and race and it's you're 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 right to say that to to some degree you have privilege and you recognize that but (laughs) i mean it's nothing compared to my privilege for example uh and and this book has really opened my eyes to that really opened my eyes to it i mean it's it's blown it wide open for me to be honest and just completely changed my perspective on on all of this um so let's go on to the black lives matter movement and this movement's been around for a while and i'm sure that the outpourings of support and equally the outpourings of dissent are nothing new to, to you as they're not to me but have you ever known the movement create a wave of attention and also tension like this no this is these are unprecedented times um you know people are donating millions to them at the at the moment and i've not seen an out an outpouring like it but you know with every movement there's always um dissent i mean the dissent is from you know black people as well wondering where all the money's going you know what's their manifesto what are they going to do they've been pretty they've been pretty quiet from from what i've seen um maybe there are articles out there where they put out a, a statement and a manifesto of what they want to happen but um yeah, it's all happened very quickly for them, really. I mean, um, just reading up on how they started, I know it's in response to the Trayvon Martin murder, which was seven years ago. It feels like it was yesterday. Wow. But, um, yeah, I think the event of the last last two weeks has just um, just been insane. It must be insane for them as well. Yeah, and and I think the, the point you made there about not knowing where the money's going, I don't necessarily think that's, that's a concern because, like Killer Mike said in that speech, which is now famous, that impromptu speech he gave, it, it's time to take stock and really think and plan strategically about how we start to address some of these inequalities. 
Um, and, and so if if the movement, if the organisation wants to really think how that money is best spent, then I think that seems like a very sensible thing to do, to take some time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, it's just that, uh, um, you know, it's been a couple of weeks and it's almost like a faceless organisation. So that's how, I guess mm. that's, a dissent that, that's a dissent that people have. Um, I mean, if people do want to donate money, I would say donate to Black Lives Matter locally. So the majority of our listeners are from the UK. So I guess donate to Black Lives Matter UK, I'd say. Mm. more than the the bigger movement and um just find local local things to to donate your money to really what does the movement mean to you t fuck it's difficult really um i guess what it means to me is that um you know our lives are as valuable as as anyone else's um you know and it's not about lives being more valuable than anyone else's this feels like um when black people die it means nothing i mean just last night um a black guy was murdered in atlanta you know um he was asleep in his car in a in a drive-through and cars had to drive around him in a drive-through the police came tried to wake him up um i think he failed a sobriety test um they tried to try to apprehend him i think he tried to run away he moved tried to I think he moved the taser ran away and they shot him in the back shot him dead so you know and that just shows that there's just like a lack of our lives seem to lack value and black lives matter seems to be off the back of that really that you know our lives matter too i mean it feels to sort of hear that story they don't like that feels so alien to people living in the uk i think because we don't see the police with guns so it's not commonplace but it is commonplace in the states that pe- the police kill people yeah. <laughs> i mean and if you take a step back from that sentence police kill people that is absolutely insane i mean there shouldn't be police killings frankly there shouldn't ever be police killings there obviously will be in certain situations where other lives are at threat and and someone needs to be subdued and there's no other way of subduing them other than lethal force as the police perceive it but it's terrifying how commonplace it is yeah i mean people over here are dying as well i mean we're not we're not innocent and we're not we're no angels I mean, people over here are dying in police custody um you know famously you know mark, mark duggan is another example of yeah. someone who yeah. you know wasn't um well for want of a better term whiter than white mm-hmm. and you know he got murdered um Smiley Culture, I'm not sure you'll have heard of, but no. some, some of your listeners will know. He had a few hits in the 80s. Um, he was killed in his own home by the police over here. Um, you know, so it's it's just as bad over here. People getting stopped and searched as well. Um, Tony Deed, I, mean, obviously, I, don't, I don't know if everyone who listens is a Patreon of the Fighting Cock, but he talked about how many times he got stopped by the police in his own car. So the police over here don't have guns, but it is pretty bad over here the way they treat um, black people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not it's not just a United States problem. It's a UK problem as well. It's just the fact that the UK police don't carry guns, so it's probably less frequent. But yeah, it it, it doesn't make it any less um, institutionalized. No, no, no. Of course. Um, I mean, another thing, another trope that's kind of come about is you know why are people protesting over here for the police aren't murdering people. You know, it's nothing to do with black people over here. But the problems that are faced in America or are faced worldwide, whether it be a bigger scale or a smaller scale. People in France, um, I think uh, Serge Aurier put out a post on his Instagram about a black person who was, I believe, was killed by the police. I might have that wrong. Someone will probably correct me on that one. So there's issues in every major country, really. 
I mean, why are the police killing people, frankly? But um, let's let's talk about your optimism for the movement, because you kind of hinted at that. Do you feel like this is a, a chance for some real change to happen? And h- how do you feel about, I mean, in terms of optimism, do you feel like there's a, a real possibility of actual genuine change? I think the change will be at glacier pace. It'll be very slow. But I do feel a lot of people are waking up, not just black people, but white people. And um you know, people are maybe not recognising, not so much recognising their privilege, but just realising the microaggressions that they do day in, day out, that black people are almost gritting their teeth and getting on with They realise that, you know, that we are we are normal human beings. You know, I'm a big football fan. Um, you know, it's not like you just have to talk to me about black things or speak to me like, I don't know, like I speak like troops from, from you know, Arsenal fan TV. Mm. You know, um, and there are a lot of, you know, I see a difference. I think Instagram is probably the biggest one for it. I'm seeing a lot of people who wouldn't previously speak about race put out posts saying, you know, white people, you know, we've, we've got to do better, calling each other out. And that's something I've never seen before. And that's where I see the change coming in. Um, the curriculum, that's kind of gaining momentum. I think that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, there's... I think I think there's there's a lot I think something will change. There will be a legacy of all this that's going on at the moment. There will be some legacy. It may not be what I want. Um right, you know, everyone says racism's not gonna end, but we all have our part to play. We all have our part to play. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right. I think I think um there are gonna be people who resist this and that's natural. But the main thing is that I think the movement and the, the coverage of the movement will force organizations to make changes. Uh, and even if they're just doing it to pay lip service, they don't necessarily really care. They just want the positive PR. The knock-on effect of that will be that hopefully it will promote better messages and it will promote black people, frankly, in, in organisations. And it's interesting you mentioned the curriculum. I work in education. I work in the education sector. And the idea of decolonising the curriculum is nothing new. But I think this will fast forward things. I think there'll be some major changes to the curriculum in schools and universities off the back of this and that can only be a, a, a good thing it's really important that young people have different voices and hear about different experiences in different cultures um, and then you i'm gonna say you mentioned um about companies and a lot of these companies the you know, the upper the upper echelons of the of the organizations don't represent their customer base indeed and, you know, even Spurs tweeted out the Black Lives Matter thing um, a week or two ago, and I believe I don't know if you did or someone else did to say, well, what about what about your own staff? You know, what's where's the representation in your own staff? And that's important as well. Um, if you have diversity within your teams, then the message will will follow suit. And it's not about tokenism at all. Um, there's nothing physically stopping a black person doing a job that a white person can do. And if you need to give them a leg up to get more representation to start with, then I don't see a problem with that at all. Yeah, I agree. That is that is that is the common um, comeback of that, isn't it? It's you know we should be selecting the best people. Uh, it, it doesn't matter about race, but that's not strictly true because we're only letting white people through the door in the first place. Something has to be done to correct that before we can then start selecting the quote unquote best people. Well, yeah, I think that there are some people who do the all lives matter and that war on race and um, you know racism will go away if you don't talk about it. I just think that the only way I think with this is going to be some very difficult conversations that are going to be had you know with a lot of groups of friends there's some people who for years and years have taken the microaggressions just to roll you know it's just banter in it but i think the events of the last two weeks will make a lot of people think you know i haven't really got to take this anymore yeah, yeah. and you know there are 
there are plenty of I mean I've got well, plenty of white friends who are having difficult conversations with their other friends and look you know you guys constantly say this and do this and it's not right and they're not getting anywhere but I would just say you can't necessarily give up on people there's everything's going to be a catalyst and this can be a catalyst for many but you know white people really do have to play their part mm, absolutely um see this is a football podcast obviously so I wanted to talk to you about your experiences of going to Spurs and whether I mean frankly whether you've witnessed racism at Spurs and whether you feel welcome at football as a black person um I've experienced racism at Spurs not to me though um but I've experienced um, people saying a couple of suspect things I think one I said on the fighting cock was someone called Drogba uh, a wog and um, I eyeballed him he apologized I didn't accept the apology um this was probably about well it'll be about 2012 2013 um but my experiences at Spurs, I do feel generally welcome, um, by and large. At, at home games, it's fairly straight. It's not difficult at home because when you go to the away games, you've got a smaller group. And I guess the elements that are a bit racist, they're a bit more visible when you go to away games. But I don't believe the racist fans of Spurs are mobilised in a way where it's like Combat 18 with Chelsea and, um, I don't know, what the fuck's West Ham, ICF, you know, a lot of racism within the ICF or Millwall fans. I don't think it's on that level, but... There's racists in society and there's racists among our fans. Uh, the um, I guess what would be a good thing to talk about would be the Rudiger situation. Um, I wasn't in the country. I wasn't at the game. And, you know, I felt a bit sad about it. I mean, after, I think a lot of Spurs fans gave Rudiger grief because they thought he was lying. And the report came out and it was inconclusive. And his dog got grief after that. So, you know, it did, it did make me a bit sad. But... You know, I mean, how did you feel about the really good situation? Did you come in for any stick? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I called it out for what I saw it to be at the time. Uh, and I still believe it happened. I, I think, um, you know, obviously Spurs did an investigation and they, they claimed they went through the crowd on using all the video footage they had, trying to find, trying to identify a potential perpetrator. And I'm sure, I, I, I do believe that they did that. Like, I don't have reason to doubt that they would have genuinely really tried to do that. Um, but just because they didn't find someone doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it's just, like you said, it's sad that Rudiger um, heard what he heard, or if he, if he didn't hear what he heard, then the fact that he, he, he expected to hear it is sad. Um, and it's a really difficult conversation to have because everyone's obviously defensive of their club because yeah. right-minded Spurs fans don't want Spurs to be a racist club. They, they The idea of that happening at their club appalls them. And so, of course, they'll defend the club to the hilt. But like you say, there's problems in society. So naturally, there are problems within football stadiums as well. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that was quite sad. And then there's fencing. We're not that kind of club. We're not that kind of club. But I think you need to kind of take those glasses off. It's not about being that kind of club. There are, what, there's 62,000 seat a stadium. It's going to be racists in there. Um, I don't believe it was a group of 5,000 fans calling him the N-word or doing monkey chants at him. There's every chance he might have heard one voice out of that, out of that entire crowd. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to go back to the initial question, I've always felt welcome at Spurs. Um, not had any issues at all. But, you know, there are people I know to be a bit racist or have views that, you know, aren't aren't compatible with mine when it comes to race. But, as I said, it's, it's, it's societal. It's not, it's not something I would put at Spurs' door. And it probably is a bit naive. And, you know, when you when you get a lot of friends who support Spurs, the only thing you have in common is Spurs. And sometimes other things come to the surface, you know. So 
you don't, I don't know, you don't like the same music or the same clothes or the same sort of books or anything. But you know, I've had a couple of conversations where I've had to call people out, even within the last few weeks with the George Floyd stuff, you know, people saying, why are we fighting over here for? Um, you know, it's not, our, it's not our problem. But there was, there's been pretty much silence when, after yesterday's rights, for example. Yeah, yeah. So, so it is is a bit difficult, but um, yeah. Um, all in all, my experiences supporting Spurs have been have been large, largely positive, and I don't feel I don't feel like I'm the odd one out when I go to games at home away. I don't feel the odd one out. I just get on with it and drink with everyone else. And you know, I think our crowd's getting a bit more diverse, more so over the last two three years than than prior to that. And um, you know, given the area of Spurs, it's a diverse area anyway. So hmm. yeah, I've never felt out of place at a Spurs game. Well, that's that's really reassuring to hear that, to be honest, T. Um, it makes me feel happy that that is the case. Um, that's not to say that football isn't institutionally racist, though. Uh, do you think there's a problem in football? Yeah, yeah, I do. And um, it's, one, it's like what we said about companies um, previously in that, you know, it's just a whole bunch of grey haired, you know, elderly white men, you know, in grey suits behind the scenes making their decisions. And as and the decisions kind of bear that out that they're making, really, um, you do need to have diversity at all levels in this, and it's not there. Um, and the decisions that have been made with managers and how they're treated, I mean, some of these black managers are not even getting interviews, which, you know, is laughable, really. Mm. Um, the amount of black players, I mean, I'm speaking about the UK, really, um, the amount of black players have had, you know, over the last 30, 40 years to have maybe less than 10 um, in the uh, award of 92 professional clubs in England is, is a disgrace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, um, I guess the the clap back to that is Sol Campbell. Um, the comment he made saying, you know, why hasn't he got the top jobs? You know, I'm Sol Campbell, I should be getting the top jobs. But, you know, Sol Campbell's a difficult one because as a Spurs fan, I hate him. <laughs> but as a black man, I empathise with some of the things that he says. And, um, you know, recent comments from Raheem Sterling, I don't know if you've heard those about Lampard and Gerrard going straight into top jobs. Yep. And Ashley Cole, who's had as illustrious a career as the other two have, is just a backroom and the backroom staff at Derby. Yeah. You know, is, is, is that down to race in its, that situation in and of itself? I don't know. But, you know, there are certain people who are getting handed top jobs and other people not so. But, but also, T, what's the, I mean, yes, it might be down to race and, and no, it might not be down to race. But what's the worst that can happen if we say, yes, it is down to race. So let's do something about it. You know, this is this is the kind of argument I have with with people. Why are we so desperate to say that it's not down to race? Why don't we just say it is down to race and try and fix the, the problem, even if it's not there? You know, that, that's where I mean, I guess that's that's where the kind of mental health kind of comes into it, where you do feel like you've been in it because it's recording almost questioning yourself. It's almost like I want to say, oh, maybe it's not about race. Maybe it's not when, you know, in my heart of hearts, it probably is. Of course it is. I mean, you said it yourself, all these black footballers we've had over the the last two decades, you know, many of the best footballers in our country are black. And how many of them are now coaches and managers? You look look in the boardrooms as well, and you look at the referees even, you know, since Uriah Rennie retired, we've not had a black referee. Yeah, it is shocking. And it's not, as I said, football is is a meritocracy. Um, if a manager is shit, he'll get the sack. So if Mourinho got the sack and, I don't know, for argument's sake, Les Ferdinand got the job, 
if he does shit, he gets the sack. Yeah. What's, the, what, what, what's there to lose? You know, um, and that's what it is. It's not like they're going to keep him there. I suppose get relegated to League Two because he's black. He's going to keep his job. That won't work. It couldn't <laughs> exactly. work. So exactly. why not give these guys a chance? You get people like Chris Powell, who you know is, doesn't have a lot to really say for himself, and he's you know, he's a shining beacon. You know, he keeps getting decent jobs, but maybe he could have stepped up by now. Um, what's the other guy's name? Forgotten. Chris Hutton's another one. You know, um, and people say, well, you know, he's doing. All right, you know he's doing all right. He should be thankful. And like, mm. well, he should he should be the exception. Chris Hutton retired from top level football circa thirty years ago. He's about he's sixty now. You know he's not got that long left at the top. And you've got Chris Powell, who's probably in his fifties, I think maybe. So it's a, just so few and far between, and something's got to change. And you know the Rooney Rule is much derided, but it's getting to a point where something that strong needs to happen. So explain what the Rooney Rule is. I think it's where you have to, if you're interviewing twelve people, at least one of them has to be a, a BAME. Not a big fan of that term, but yeah, that's what you need. Okay. Okay. So they you have to, you have to at least interview them, and if you have, if you're interviewing twelve people, none of them are are, are minorities, and yeah, I guess. If, even if it is tokenism and they show they can do the job, maybe they say, you know, you're not going to get this job, but I'll give you a job at this place. And the numbers will increase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult in top flight football because so often we see a manager lose his job and then the next man is already lined up anyway. Like Mourinho has announced so quickly that there can barely have been an interview process, can there? So that that adds another a blockage in the, in the way, I guess, as well. No, exactly. And um, I think he even mentioned... I mean, this is kind of going a little bit off topic, but even if um, like podcasts, for example, um, you know, you want to, I mean, it'd be good to diversify, but you, you still want to do that on merit, but then you've got to give people the chance. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, what can we do? I mean, but I think football has to represent what's on the pitch and what's in the crowds and the crowds are getting more and more diverse. Um, you know, as much as I hate Arsenal, um, you know, their crowds very, very diverse. And I think in the next 10, 15 years, Spurs will be too. Now that we're getting better, I think, you know, we'll see more minority fans at our games. Do you have ideas, T? I mean, you mentioned the Rooney Rule, but do, do you have any ideas for how we can support the eradication of racism in football? Oh, that's a very, very so it's big, a big question. It's a big question. It's a big question. And obviously, you know, Troy Townsend, who is someone we, we both know and admire greatly, he's doing wonderful work. But I, I think Troy sometimes feels like he's just banging his head against the brick wall because he, he makes the same suggestions over and over again and it feels like he doesn't get listened to. Well, yeah, I mean, these are what I'll probably say will be stuff he suggested already, but you've got to take it seriously when players are racially abused. It, it has to. I mean, it, people are getting paltry fines. Um, yeah. You know, what comes up over and over again is Nicholas Bentner getting fined more than some nation's FAs are being done for racism. So, mm-hmm. you know, why not Why not put heavier sanctions on them? You know, um, if fans are caught to be racially abused, using people, you know, also that's got to be heavier sanctions as well. And uh, there was a Leeds player who called someone at the N-word. Yeah. I believe he got a few months... Um, don't know if it's suspended for a few months. I'm not sure what the what the sanction was, but it's just got to be stronger sanctions from that point of view. It just has to be because, well, if I'm racially abused as a footballer, and I know that they're only going to get a two three game ban, what's the point of me even even turning it in? Yeah. Um, and Rudiger will feel the same way. I mean, look, I don't know if if he ever it could have been um, who let the Yids out or Yidjidjid or whatever, but um, if he's done that, if he's believes he's heard racial abuse and nothing happens 
how's he gonna feel how are other black people gonna feel why would they come forward he's getting he's getting dogs abuse on on social media which comes with being a footballer anyway because he was brave enough to come forward why should anyone else come forward and it's the same with the managers um you know i mean the next generation of black black top level footballers would be wealthy beyond their dreams so why would they have to why would they bother going to management but then they'll think well what have i got to aspire to you know chris hewton managing mid-table teams and chris powell knocking around the lower leagues why, why bother so so you'd have to be stronger sanctions and i think there has to be a bigger effort to diversify football at the at, at boardroom level um Les Ferdinand, I believe, was um, at a fairly high level at QPR, and hopefully that will be more commonplace. Absolutely. And he referenced their Leeds player. It's, um, it was their goalkeeper, Casilla. Yeah. And he abused Jonathan Lecco of Charlton. He was given an eight-game ban and a £60,000 fine. I mean, it's nothing, really, is it? It's 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 hardly a deterrent when um, a player is getting an eight-game ban for using a racial slur. Exactly. It's, um, it's a disgrace. It's just like, well, no, this is another thing. If that if that was a Spurs player who got the eight eight game ban, and I'm at I don't know I'm at Beaver Town, and I'm saying it's a disgrace, and other other fans would be like, well, he's a bit of an idiot, isn't he? It is what it is. Mm. So I don't push the argument. It's not really worth me pushing the argument forward and ruining everyone's day. <laughs> so you know, I just got to kind of eat shit, really. Speaking and, of that, T, how do you feel about Deli Ali's uh, punishment? He's one game ban. Oh man, um, I'm conflicted because you you thought it was going to be a bigger bigger ban. Mm, I did. I guess it's not a deterrent at all. As such, it was meant to be a private message, and it was out publicly. Uh, I, don't, kinda, I, don't I, feel, I feel like he kind of got off on a technicality because he said the guy was coughing, but you couldn't hear it in the in the video. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because I don't want to downplay what East Asian people go through. Um, I don't know many East Asian people, so I don't have any first-hand accounts of you know of what they go through living in the UK. But but yeah, I do think even if I don't believe he should have got a, got a bigger band than what he got, I think there has to be a deterrent out there. It has to be a deterrent because he's getting he, that came out and he knows he's not going to get a long ban. So he just says sorry and gets on with it. I mean, look at the Wayne Hennessy situation as well. You know, yeah, it, yeah it's a point. There's just got to be more deterrents, and you know. Um, what he did, what Daddy Ali did was wrong and should have probably got a longer ban based on what he did. Let's um let's end this on a positive and a kind of developmental point. How can people be allies? Uh, first thing is to listen. If a black person or another minority says something is racist, it probably is. And they'll know better than you. Um, you know, there's times when you get told, oh, it's just banter and all that. But if they say it's racist, take it seriously. Um, you know, um, I think Renia lodges that number one of her book. So books like that are very helpful. And just, yeah, this, this we could just got to listen to, to the pleas of, you know, black people, Asian people and other minority groups, because, um, I'm not saying something is racist for a laugh. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not about me not being able to take a joke. I can clearly take a joke being part of the Fighting Cock podcast. But, <laughs> you know, if I say something is racist, 99.9999% of the chance it, it probably is. And you just got to listen. Um, and just call out other, other white people. Call it out. Don't be afraid to call them out. There's going to be, People of friend, friendship groups who are going to be split. You know, there are going to be people who feel like all lives matter and they'll think black lives matter. Um, don't be afraid to challenge them on it. But at the same token, 
you know, if you're not a confrontational person, don't beat yourself up about it. Just try and educate yourself more. Just try and slowly educate people around you, whether it be about whether it be about privilege or intersectionality. And it's not just about race, it's about sexualities and gender and, and all of it. You just really got to um, just listen to people. Um, I'm not going to go into the nuts and bolts of what J.K. Rowling has said, but she has a platform and those comments can be seen as damaging to a lot of people who are struggling. There's there's a lot of deaths of um, particularly black trans people and they're not heavily reported on. So everyone has to be mindful of the, the impact that these opinions can have. Everyone's entitled to an opinion, but everyone's entitled to free speech. But you have to be mindful of the impact of what you're saying. T, you're a wonderful man. Thank you so much for your time. And next Welcome. time um, you will be here talking about football. Yeah, not about these issues. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem, man. Anytime. Take care of yourself, mate. Okay, mate. Bye. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. Uh, I am joined by my friend, Seif. Seif is a Man United fan, uh, but more importantly for what we're going to talk about today, he is American and he is black. Um, but let's let's warm up. Let's talk about football. Uh, so United Spurs is coming up uh, with the, the, the return to Premier League football. How are you feeling about that match? Uh, I'm just excited to see the, the gang back in action. You know, I just uh, want to see Rashi out there, see Poe, see him play with Bruno. Uh, as much as I'm not a huge Ole fan, not a big Ole Gunnar Solskjaer fan, still sure. want to see the boys play, you know? I saw I saw um, clips from United's training match or whatever surfacing around recently and United fans getting, getting excited about various individual players. Um, I, th- I guess that's that's also happening within the Spurs fan base. I think there was a Lamella goal that people were excited by, but... I don't know. I'm still feeling kind of weird about it, but hopefully, once the actual the actual match kicks in, it'll it'll feel real and 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 good again. Um, yeah, it still feels kind of like uh, almost a, a dirtiness to it to be excited about these people having to go back to work. <laughs> um, yeah, no, for sure. but it is a is a is a good you know. It'll be fun to have the games back on. It'll be fun to actually be able to to dive into that for an hour and a half, two hours on a weekend, yeah. you know, and a reason to stay in. So there's that, right? Um, so this is this is an episode about racism in football, or at least um, predominantly about racism in football. And Windy's going to have, uh, in the meantime, conducted a couple of interviews on those topics. But I think that this one is going to be a little more broad. So every time there is um, a a racism incident to use like horrifically journalistic language uh john barnes uh gets called 
uh, by Sky and then he gets called up by the BBC uh, and every time he says the same thing he says that racism is not a football issue it's a society issue and that racism within football won't be solved until racism within society is solved where do you do you agree with him on that uh yeah I mean I, I actually do kind of agree with that is you know football exists in a we live in a society you know like people say like it, <laughs> we do live in a society <laughs> so so there's no way to divorce football from that like it 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 permeates every interaction just because it colors how people grow up how people experience things it you know i, I got in a big discussion the other day with like my girlfriend about how a lot of things that we consider intrinsic like basically everything is, is learned and sure. it's a thing that that it again it, it's learned you experience it from the first day and it colors every single thing so football would not be will not be immune to that so with that in mind let's um let's discuss sort of current events i guess the sort of um the foundational question and it's a very uncomfortable one but i guess it, it sort of gives us a, a launch pad here is um generally speaking uh why do you think george floyd was killed uh generally speaking that it's a a, a crisis of over policing generally uh it's it's hard for me to gear down too too specifically on sure. the george floyd incident because it is it is you know a long time coming there are a lot of things that built into the that interaction part of the reason why even a a police officer would find it okay to approach a citizen in that manner and uh carry out actions in that way is that in america specifically our police are very 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 rarely held accountable for uses of force um if you have like you know a, a fear of actual consequence for your actions you behave in a slightly different way and it's almost been a learned behavior over time that uh as a cop, your job is to protect order, protect capital, and you do that by cracking down on like these <laughs> disparate classes. And um, you're not going to be punished for it because that's what you're supposed to do. And like that's how you end up in that scenario where uh, I believe it was that that a, a, the owner of the store ended up calling the cops, and then they, you know the cops come and, and they escalate because that's what they do, and because they feel that they have the power in every scenario, they never stop to think. And uh, it goes from there. So do you think that sort of consequences of actions is the is the major focus of the ongoing process? Is that the sort of overriding theme? I think that's what people are finally starting to. I, I think there's good to harping on that. And there's also some not good to it. It is a problem that there is not consequence for the action of the police. Um, like it, it's, it's good that people are focusing on like, hey, if police are allowed to do whatever, they will do whatever. And that will lead to an abuse of power. I think it's good that people are looking at it in that way. But the issue generally is like over policing and it is much more systemic than that. Uh, in the U.S. especially, the police are asked to do like way too, too, too much. Uh, in America, we call the police to get a cat out of a tree to uh, you see a dog running loose. You call the police. You have a neighbor going through mental health crisis. You call the police. Wow. You have like, uh, you know, your friend who you usually talk to every day. Like for some reason you think, oh, no, I haven't heard from them in two days. I tried to call them and they're not answering and I can't swing by their place. Like, let me call. Even if you call not, you know, 911, which is our 
our line to uh, emergency services and you say you want to have a wellness check on your friend that you haven't heard from in a while, they will still send the police there sometimes without any EMS. So like we've really, the police is so deeply ingrained in our heart. And uh, that over-policing leads to just so many interactions with the police where it's become this this monolith that does so much. And now that they do so much and there's never any consequences, excuse me, any consequences for it, they they, they overstep consistently. That's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm very reluctant to do the thing where it's like, wow, those Americans sure have it bad as with racism it's a good job that we're fine with everything and there's no police issues here in the uk because obviously that's like an absurd stance but we definitely you definitely opened my eyes there to like how much the police are just involved in everything because um i've never called the police in my life i think my parents have called the police once or twice and based on their own experience with that have sort of vowed off that unless they felt it was an absolute necessity but like definitely you know uh they are not the resource I go to for several of the examples you, you gave there or that we go to for several of the examples you gave there. So that's very interesting. That um, do, do you think it's a similar case that the the greater the police involvement with various aspects of society, the the worse their behavior and, and the worse the situation is? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily that because there's so much involvement, it makes it worse. But the fact that there's so much involvement and there's also a like racial bias to it makes it more likely to end up negatively impacting a certain like sect of society. And that's kind of where I'm coming at it from. I think it would be like an idealized world if, you know, your cat was stuck in a tree. You, every person can call their community animal services people or whatever. Sure. And if, you know, your neighbor was having a mental health episode, you'd be able to actually call your communities like mental health services where they would come in and be able to check on them, de-escalate and be trained. Um, that would be ideal. But it, it's it's hard to like button down because Policing in the U.S. It has such a troubled like history, especially, and it's there's so many things that go into it. There's so many things about how uh, the excesses of our like military industrial complex have led to this bill that basically allows police to get like military equipment for free, and like our cops just have like drones and tanks, and you've seen them in like full riot gear, and then that also yeah. militarizes the mindset of the police to the point where they think of themselves as occupying forces, especially in minority communities or especially in poor communities. So I really don't want to like make it as if this is solely a race issue, um, especially in the U.S. Like the police come from a history of like slave catching one. But that's not only a racial issue. That is an issue of protecting like the property of the capital owning class and like not to go, you know, full Marxist or anti-capitalist or anything like that. But like they very much do protect the interests of the rich and primarily the rich white people. And that leads to disparate impacts against um, black people and brown people, but also against even poor white people who who feel the wrath of those militarized police. Um, and I completely like, lost the plot in there because there's so many avenues to go down. Like when you talk about policing, it's, it's, it's honestly like that's that's kind of why the, the abolition movement and the conversation around it has you've seen it spurn and, and, and split off into 80 different conversations because mm. there's so many ways where it touches people and so many ways where it could be improved that it's hard to button down on one. It's hard to button down on one root cause. Is it the fact that it's like has rotten roots in slave catching and, and 
punishing like even white uh, farmers for not working hard enough on their fields like back in the day? Is it that they've been militarized? Is it that like the cops don't live in the communities that they police? Is it that there's a general race problem in the United States, sure. you know, stemming from chattel slavery? Like it, there's so many things to, to, to possibly attribute it to that it's hard to uh, pick one. And, and probably the answer is that it's all of the above. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But that's kind of hard to wrap your head around too. Sure. Sure. I th- I think um, the the history of policing, uh, specifically within America, but globally as well, is really interesting because I think that we like to uh, discuss police as this sort of like necessity and this sort of conceptually pure thing um, that is just sort of fundamental to an ordered society. But um, when you look and then like, oh, how did our police force become racist? You know, that sort of that sort of um, white shock thing of, wow, how did this happen? But like clearly conceptually um or at least from the off, um, police were designed around sort of racist ideas and, and as you say, um, possession protector um, ideas. Do you think that, uh, like, the concept of police at all is essentially uh, um, just prone to, to racism or just conceptually racist from, from the basis? Um, it's, it's, it's a funny thing because, like you, you touched on, police has almost been, like, retconned as, like, a thing that's always existed it yeah. has to be this way. Before this, there was like madness, and every time you walked out, you were just being bludgeoned by the biggest guy <laughs> in the street, and it was all primal and like awful. And like, it's not the case, one, for like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the world now, a lot of places that even have police that you're seeing like other protests pop off about policing. It's fully like an export of colonialism. They exist in societies that didn't have policing and that were able to like still self-organize. Mm-hmm. And it was like put in place by colonialist nations to protect the like property and interest of those like colonizers. And when you think about it in that like context where where a lot of police forces came in with like war and colonization to protect the interest of the colonizers, like of course it always ends up in a place where it's it's racialized. You know, it's of course it always ends up in a place where like in Brazil, like Afro Brazilians are policed more just strictly violently than white Brazilians. Of course it ends up in the ways where it's, you know, black and brown people are policed far more violently than like white people in the United States. Of course it ends up in a way where like minority marginalized, uh, you know, surplus populations are more policed wherever you go. It, it almost is fundamentally like the, the creation of the police to protect private property and the interest of those who own property and the value of that property will always lead to, you know, it has to be almost a violent subjugation of the people who don't own property, the people who own, aren't part of the dominant class. And that often is expressed through like just racism because it's it's oftentimes the most clearest line to tell who is or isn't in the in-group, you know? Given that then, is, is sort of, um, is racism inevitable wherever there is economic inequality uh it's there's uh it's not inevitable i wouldn't say that it's just that it's the easiest means of division exactly the easiest avenue by which to separate the interests of people who otherwise might be against like a ownership or dominant class you know is if you could call create division along these very clear like actually visible lines um if you can create division there it presents i mean it prevents people actually turning and looking in one direction and possibly you know revolting insurrection 
this, that, and the third. And it's more just an issue of like where there's equality, the police will serve to protect the people at the very top. And the people at the very top will also work to sow racism because it keeps the people who are suffering underneath the police and because they're not at the very top from actually being mad at the people at the top, if that makes sense. It does, it does. Um, so we, we've touched on sort of some of the ways in which police can be sort of cut back, especially in American society. But again, I also think globally, we can still do a better job here of, of not utilizing the police for, you know, every minor issue. Um, so there's, there's grounds for, for, I guess, what, what still comes under reform there. But you also touched on, on abolition. Do you think that there are, there are solutions within the police abolition movement? Uh, I think like very fundamentally you you like again I'm not a person who studied on this for years like I've I've touched upon pieces of, about abolition um a lot from Twitter where I've actually come across these conversations but like I I struggle to see a path to full abolition of like policing while there is still like conceptually you know private property and 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 needs that need to be protected because like my you know the the worst part is the, I mean the fear that I have almost is if you just outright abolish police today is that that the role of policing would then just be taken up by like Blackwater private and, and yeah, private sure. security groups like that because the interest is still there. I think like my the the way that I see it maybe working out best is the defund movement in a path towards abolition where we're defunding the police and actually supporting community solutions where there, I think there are some reforms that can be pushed to make policing less brutal, less violent, make people more accountable, make people more accountable to the communities that they police by one, making them live there, but also actually like if you do a bad thing, realistically, if like the police are the order, the people were supposed to hold and create order for a society, like you should actually hold them to the highest standard of all. Like that would just, in my mind, that would just make the most sense. They should be the most exemplary. So when they do misstep, like have a misstep, they should be the heaviest critique. That makes sense to me. Yeah, if you actually impose that, like that would go a long way. If you make people actually live in the communities which they police, that would go a long way. If you take away a lot of the money that goes to police, that leads to efforts that lead to, again, militarization of the police, and you actually fund those like community animal services, like hotline and the community like mental health hotline. And if you uh, create a, a, a class of unarmed civilian group that is trained de-escalators and can respond to incidents of you know d- domestic violence or, or or child endangerment that's not the police if you could have just there has to be it has to be like radically rethought and, and i struggle to see what the path forward is because there's just so much like there's so much built up around the absolute need for them and and, and and there's such a pushback against any type of questioning of the way that they move but i think that like if you start with defunding police and if you you move towards supporting community solutions to issues that people have uh community solutions that also like create room for for rehabilitation and like actual restorative justice and you just limit how often the police get called i think if you can move towards that people will slowly start to realize that they don't need the police as much as they thought and then you could actually be on a path to potential for abolition okay can you can you talk to me briefly uh, a little bit about um restorative justice and what that means uh it's it's a it's, it's a term that's kind of hard to even like wrap my head around because it's something that i've only really started to actually dive into but it's you know making it's almost like making people whole again people that were harmed and the people who 
did the harming, approaching them as like humans and trying to to find solutions that can help the people who are harmed, but also make it so the people that are doing the harm aren't in a position to do it again. Like getting to the root of issues to actually figuring out how do we resolve this in a way that that works for both parties and makes it so that this doesn't happen again. And it's like sounds pie in the sky in a way, but I think it's something that can be achieved. It's just going to take like more compassion, more understanding, more community and and a lot more want to and like I really hope that people can get on a path towards that. It makes a lot of sense to me because um like I think if you think about like what is prison and what is it for if you start with the idea that like it's a place to put people who are too dangerous for society you so I sort of have to 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 accept that that that's maybe a necessity but then from there it obviously continues to grow and and it becomes this this idea of like a means of reforming people but it's obviously clearly not performing that purpose because people who go to prison tend to go back to prison and it doesn't work as a deterrent because there are so many crimes <laughs> committed or or invented up even um so um yeah I, I definitely think that that obviously makes sense i just i just think that this is um it's there's a lot of like brands and individuals who sort of use the phrase systemic racism um at the moment they want to address acknowledge and address systemic racism but then there's very little conversation at least in my circles and probably this is a failure of myself but there seems to be very little discussion of what system what are the systems of racism and, and how are they built and where does it exist so um we, uh, so now that we sort of understood sort of the role briefly here obviously of of, of policing uh of property of prisons in terms of systemic racism those obviously aren't the limits um so once we've you know now that we completely solved police and prisons perfectly forever uh where else do we address systemic racism um in in education in just access to services in transportation in creating like again public spaces for people to actually be community and like not be atomized like that it's all people say systemic racism they don't talk about like the system under which racism thrives and and like one of that one of those systems is the system of you know is the system of capitalism where it 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 calls for an atomization it calls for a separation it creates a need for a divide and it creates a need for an exploited class and it creates a need for subjugation if the only means by which to like derive profit is through the exploitation of someone else's labor you're always going to have something someone that needs to be doing worse off and like how do we make it so that there's not that or how do it you know even if we're not going to full like communization or anything how do we reduce those ills how do we make it so the people who are worse off aren't so bad off at least as a start and then like that is when you will be able to tackle the system of systemic racism is when you could tackle the systems that lead to this inequality lead to this inequity lead to this this diversity in outcomes and opportunities like that's that's kind of where it where it starts okay so I know that like uh, specifically feminism, but also within other courses as well, there's a lot of talk about a glass ceiling. Is it for you? Is it more about raising the floor than than looking to the top? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, because raising the floor helps a lot more people than getting a couple more people to the top. And and if we were just a society where the app like the absolute floor was still like three square meals a day and a roof over your head, yeah, we'd be way better off than if we had a couple more black, brown, uh, trans, queer like billionaires at the top. 
Sure, that, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Um, is there anything else to talk about? Is there anything you want to talk about? Uh, nothing that comes to mind. Like I, I could ramble on, and I have to my family members and all my friends and fast for hours and, and go down like twisted paths and and create wild analogies and all this stuff. But like the biggest thing is, uh, I I think I want to call attention to again is that policing isn't only an issue of race it is also an issue of class and you need to like actually keep that conversation in the front of your mind as well um you need to be able to actually critique it from there you can't talk about systemic racism you can't talk about intersectionality of again gender and and uh race without mentioning class because uh i said it on my instagram to a couple of my you know fellow well not fellow but my lib friends is like in a world where we were able to make police outcomes completely flat on the system like of race you would still have a system of policing in which queer people were targeted more in which poor people were targeted more and like that's not acceptable either (laughs) so like keep that in your mind keep that in the lens when you consider this issue of policing and how we can improve it going forward Brilliant. Thank you for coming on, Cephas. I've really appreciated this. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Peace, dude. All right. You've been listening to The Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Barney for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindner for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davey Shambles and his SoundCloud, Dee Lindner. Do check him out. He's great. great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.